interesting, occasionally interesting. They are occasionally interesting. Hello, listeners. Let's start with I am so sorry that the podcast's break has gone on longer than anticipated. We were in the U.S. and learned a new meaning of the word busy. Um, we were so overwhelmed and sleep deprived. We still recorded some great new episodes with some amazing guests, but I had absolutely no time whatsoever to edit. So I'm sorry for my lack of professionalism and uh, I've I've missed doing the podcast these last couple of weeks and I've missed interacting with you guys um, and I hope you can forgive us and it shan't happen again until next time we go to the states in which case we'll give you a much better warning um we could we could not have anticipated how crazy our lives were while we were there it shan't happen again um please sir may i have another so this episode is just me and Trevor talking. I thought we recorded it after we'd been in the States for two weeks, I think. Um, and I usually I, I edit the podcast before we record these intros. Um, but I didn't do that this time because I didn't, I don't quite remember what we're talking about and I wanted to kind of keep it that way. Um, while recording this intro because I just wanted to talk, uh, about how incredible. Thailand is and then listen for myself to hear like the juxtaposition of what of what we're saying um so yeah we've been back in Thailand for just a couple days now and for the most part both of us have been like holy shit like what what is going on it is just amazing to be back here in so many ways and I mean in ways that we're like this doesn't make sense. What's what's seriously happening here? Just just I feel I felt like 10 years younger the moment we stepped off the plane in Thailand. I we didn't have any jet lag. We just immediately were like ready to be on Thailand time. I just feel so much healthier, more energetic, so much less stressed, so much less paranoid. So much just like I don't know, just crazy or thinking anything bad. And dear, I think you've said you've you've experienced a similar thing. Yes. Yes, I have. <laughs> I find the most interesting one to be the paranoia. Because it feeds into my paranoia when I'm less paranoid <laughs> in Thailand than in the United States. It's a very interesting brand of paranoia in the United States. Kind of like it's all about you know the big systems watching us yeah. and and like what are they doing to us and whatnot. I mean, this is the type of paranoia and just. I didn't really realize how pervasive it was until it was relieved by coming to Thailand and then going back. It was accentuated. So intense, how, yeah, how yeah. Intense it really was to be like, oh wow, yeah, that's that feeling again, like. <laughs> Every time you pass a cop, like, oh yeah, they're there, they're there for me, uh, but I'm going the speed limit. <laughs> well, and not just not just obvious examples like seeing a cop, but but seriously, yeah, the word 
pervasive um just just all the time in in everything that you're doing there's an undertone of stress and not feeling safe or, or you know feeling like you're in trouble or going to be in trouble i mean yeah yeah i feel like even in our relationship and in our other our relationships with our family or whatnot but like definitely even in ours like that we were just like a little bit more like suspicious and worried and paranoid about each other and and like i feel like we could be in the same exact circumstances here and and none of the same feelings would be had do you, what do you think I wasn't paranoid of the bebop. <laughs> yeah, you were. No. Not that I recall. You told you told me that you were at some point. Not like the same type of cop paranoia, but just, you know, like, I just think thoughts that we... I mean, yeah, all this stuff just makes me wonder about the nature of thoughts, and this is a conversation that we've had a bunch before. Um, but what thoughts... Are thoughts always truly our own or are are they given to us from outside sources? And if so, how and what sources? I know this all sounds so woo-woo-y and mystical, but I mean, now that we've really experienced this juxtaposition going in multiple directions, I it's... It kind of reminds me of, um, uh, what's her name? The author of Eat, Pray, Love. Elizabeth Gilbert. Her TED talk about thoughts about like genius and and stories coming and choosing their host. Yeah, but that sort of like mimics the idea of thoughts being external from oneself. Yeah, these things float around and choose. You know, her her version of it is that they choose whom they come upon, or or they come down and see if you, you know, hit you if you're ready or not, and then either you take advantage of them or they move on to the next host. Yeah, but say if that system was true could it then be hijacked yeah i mean i definitely feel i i've since the moment i first heard her articulate that i've definitely been like like that's really resonated with me and when i've talked about it um i mean this is mostly pertaining to life as an artist then skeptics will just say no that's imposter syndrome like you just don't feel you know feels too braggadocious to be like oh yeah no i am i am fully genius like everything great that comes out of me is because i'm so great but you know me i have no problem saying stuff like that i say stuff like that fairly frequently um but there's definitely just times where with art or other things that i'm doing where it's just like a different flavor to it where it's like holy shit how did this come out of me like this doesn't, yeah, it just doesn't, I don't know. And that I've been such an amazing artist <laughs> since I was a little kid. Well, I don't think you're braggadocious. I think you're super califragilistic expialidocious. Oh, wow. Thanks, baby. You're welcome. Um, yeah, man. Any other, do you have any, give, give Thailand some compliments. Let's, let's talk about how nice Thailand is. Thailand's great. It's the beginning of the rainy season. We're, we're wishing that it's raining more, but it is still lush and green and so unlike smoky season. It's, it's a welcome return. Yeah. It was so nice to come back here to just, to, to rain and, um, Chewie's just brought us a stick. Um, 
and and to be able to just breathe really deeply. Yeah. I mean, I think that has a lot to do with it too. I mean, not only are we in Thailand, which is pretty culturally chill to begin with, but we're also in Pai, which I'd say is probably pretty chill by even Thai standards. Oh, for sure. And I think that that, that underlying chillness is is also pervasive. Yeah, but still, I mean, like, I know we were living in Philadelphia, but most of the choices that we were making, I mean, like, our group of friends and, like, our extracurricular activities were all really centered sure. around community and chill and... But, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, like, you know, all those, like, studies that I don't know how, how valid they are, but, like, that show that prayer can help people in, in, in the hospitals and, and uh, like, the one organization that pays people to meditate to yeah. elevate the consciousness and, and of the and, entire world. You know, it's conceivable if, if any of those are to be taken with any sort of credit that the general vibe of the people around you, not just necessarily those that you're interacting with, can influence your demeanor in some sort of way. So being in this chill environment surrounded by chill people that we're not even necessarily communicating with could be influencing our perception of the world around us it's yeah. a fascinating concept <laughs> but, but, but the more people we meet from pi the less like truly chill anybody is on an individual level well i think there's probably still more people here yeah. trying to a- a- achieve a state of enlightenment actively trying to achieve a state of enlightenment whether they're succeeding or not it's all you know yeah personal story to them but i think that that intention alone is enough to be felt if this is all real (laughs) but hey we were in chiang mai for our first whatever day and a half two days back in thailand and even there i mean we just felt like a totally pure lightness of being of just and and that i would not really call i mean i'm sure i mean in comparison to all the cities of the world chiang mai is pretty chill but it definitely doesn't feel like (laughs) chiang mai is chill after living in pi um and, I mean, it's a big city, so you're getting a very diverse range of humans with attitudes and practices and whatnot. Um, and that, but even again, that as far as amazing. cities go, even in Thailand, I think Chiang Mai is probably one of the more, like, you know, compared to Bangkok, certainly. Well, any place in the world compared to Bangkok is like, pretty chill. But I think that, you know, part of the appeal of Chiang Mai is its chillness. Yeah. And, yeah I mean, it's interesting that the digital nomad community... I don't know if they're necessarily, I don't, I don't know if they're necessarily chill or not, but I bet they're probably, I guess we did meet a lot of them. They were pretty chill. Yeah. At least the ones who, you know, care about gathering a community. Say the ones who, you know, just Gravity. exist on the message boards to troll people might be a yeah, little less true. chill and they're not trying to hang out. But like any group, you got your variety. Yeah. It is funny that message board. If you ever get an opportunity, go check out the <laughs> Go Chiang ask Mai a question on Chiang Mai Digital Nomads <laughs> Facebook group. Admire at the responses. Yeah, I mean, I'd say some, some of the most clever trolls out there in the whole world. I'm going to say, like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, they make me laugh. Um. Anyway, overall, the time in the states. I'd say it was like, you know, still mostly nice, even though it was really overwhelming and intense. Um, you know, I don't know. I enjoyed my time. I really enjoyed the wedding. Yes. That was a lot of fun. I think the wedding was beautiful. My cousin Anna and my new cousin-in-law, Andrew, got married. 
Um, they're a fantastic couple. They're very sweet. Yeah, they're the best. Perfect couple. I like I like both sides of the family. It was nice to see the whole Tracy family all, most of the Tracy family all in one spot at one time. Um, we've mostly, you know, tried to pretend like I don't have a last name here on this podcast, and you're outing me, but uh, <laughs> but it's okay because we're giving props to my family. <laughs> yeah. It's nice to see all of your family all in one spot <laughs> at one time. And Andrew's family was very sweet as well. It was a fun time. Fun time. Good good time. Good tacos down there in Oakland. Shout out. We'll, we also, we painted a big mural for the Marriott. And holler. Holler. Uh, we just, uh, and we also, we are committing fully to this digital nomad lifestyle and we completely got rid of our apartment and all of our belongings i have i know trevor's petting me now because it was very hard on me um it's mostly her belongings yeah <laughs> um he I've lived a digital nomad-esque <laughs> preparing for a digital nomad lifestyle for quite some time it's a great way conception um <laughs> yeah it was mostly my stuff um i mean but but you know as soon as i as soon as i picked you up in the world i i uh got us a bunch of stuff on behalf of us so there was many things that were ours ours that's true you saved the rock though so that's, that's... <laughs> would you like to go into any further detail <laughs> okay just leave it at that um yeah, so that was pretty intense, moving out of our apartment, getting rid of everything we own. Um, my parents were kind enough to transport our big suitcases that we were bringing back to Thailand um, from Philadelphia to meet us in California because we were going to Colorado in between and had really cheap flights, so we weren't allowed to have suitcases. And our suitcase was over the weight limit when my mom was bringing it. And so she had to uh, frantically try to repack the suitcases to more evenly distribute the weight limit. And uh, she opens this random, huge suitcase filled with a random assortment of crap that no person in their right mind should be bringing to Thailand. <laughs> but luckily, I'm not in my right mind. <laughs> that was very nice of your parents. Yes, definitely. Yeah, parents, you were great. The whole. Yeah. Our whole trip home couldn't have done this incredibly overwhelming time without you. Yeah, Thanks for being be the best. Trying to finish the mural without you guys. Thank yeah. you. And and thank you for supplying bagels at every oh turn. My God. That was definitely like the highlight of going home. We really got to eat some great carbs. <laughs> yeah. Although, hashtag Trevor Bakes Pizza. Yes. It's now in full force. I've moved on from bread. I haven't moved no. on. No. I've evolved since since hash, last hashtag Trevor Bakes Bread. Yes, this was last night as of recording. And oh my we God. New it cob was oven. glorious. This pizza was so good. Some of them don't look completely pretty because the cheese got a little sloppy, but you can We're tell still perfecting that crust our putting in, taking is out method. Beautiful. Yeah, that was good crust. Happy the way it turned out. Oh, good. Um, it makes me very happy when you're happy with your work because normally he's a h- hilarious amount of perfectionist. It's so funny what a perfectionist you are. <laughs> it like doesn't really seem in character that you're so much of a perfectionist. I mean, I think if you're going to do something, you should do it right. I think you should never stop trying to 
strive for perfection. Oh, that's why you're Especially such a wonderful partner to me. Yes. Yeah. And such a good daddy to Chewy. That's also have the fun of things like baking or, or, or things that require perfection. You know, that, that can be, that can be, I mean, so there's nothing more visceral than eating something. And then the act of perfecting something that you're eating, I, I, I find it all very. Anyway, so in the rest of this episode that we recorded when we were in the U.S., I know we talk a lot about politics because we were like heavily entrenched in being in the U.S. And we actually recorded this as we were doing, you know, a classic American thing, a road trip. We were driving from, sorry, Chewy, we were driving from. <laughs> I was trying to think of when we recorded a podcast in the States. I was like, yeah, sure, we did that. Mm. But yes, yes. We did. You remember now? I think we were in what? We're, we were definitely in the South when we were recording, by the time we were recording this. We were either in Virginia or North Carolina. Um, Down in the South? Yeah. So we've been on the road for a bit, been been in the States for two weeks. Um, there, So this was recorded, I think, right after episode two of the last season of Game of Thrones came out. So there are spoiler alerts for Game of Thrones final season as of like episode two we're drawing a lot of analogies and parallels to American politics or like world politics and Game of Thrones and talking a lot about Game of Thrones and man it's so weird that it's over and it really just seems like a hundred percent absent from the cultural stratosphere immediately like it it was something that was so ubiquitous for the last whatever nine years and now it's just like truly gone, and that's crazy. I don't think it's ever truly gone. Don't you feel it like lives it on immediately exited? Well, I do feel like they fucked up the last season a bit, and, and they, therefore it's not as worth talking about. Yeah, what are you gonna say? Also, now the fact that it's over, there's no more speculation about what's going to happen. There's only disappointment to be expressed. And it seems to be the case, although. I don't I don't really know if anything else could have happened. I mean, I don't know why they cut it short. I think they could have done the character development that people are bitching about was not there if they did 10 episodes. But they had to get greedy or something. I don't know why they chose to be like, yeah, let's just, let's just cut it short. People won't mind. What do you remember from uh, recording this episode? Trevor gives some uh, helpful hints for how to be an engaged citizen. I can't remember what other podcasts we'd recorded at this point in the States. Um, we definitely went really heavy on the sustainability theme, which was delightful. And, um, oh man, you guys, Trevor was on Reddit last night and there was this post. Can you go into detail, dear? He was saying that there's a likelihood that civilization will as we know, it will be over by 2050. It said we will reach the point of no return in terms of like destroying. I think this was not saying that, that the tipping point will be at 2050, that by 2050, climate change will have effectively destroyed civilization through things like droughts and famine and, and displacement and that causing wars and then that destroying civilization. I do not think that this was saying at 2050, we'll reach a point where this planet will no longer be salvageable, which is two different things, two very bad things. But 
you mean in 30 years saying that life as we know it will no longer exist don't you i mean i feel like this year we we were living in thailand and you know living in a that was also that was a really interesting thing of going home of we've been living in thailand and um experiencing smoky season that we told you guys all about and it was you know one of the most horrible environmental disasters that i've ever i mean the most horrible environmental disaster that i've ever been directly a part of i mean i was like i was in new jersey for like hurricane sandy but um this was worse obviously it was so it lasted so long it was so crazy and it affected i mean like people died it affected many countries in this area so many people got really sick there was a mass exodus from the area for everyone who could afford to leave or who had life circumstances that allowed them to leave and um and now like tourism is incredibly down uh it, it really really had a strong impact and we went home nobody knew about this and i'm sure it's like that all the time i'm sure there's so many natural disasters going on at this exact moment in time in countries that don't matter as much to the western world and they yeah they're just not getting talked about right i think i think it was well i think what's even sadder is they are getting talked about just nobody cares i mean i remember hearing this like horrific detailed account of what it was like crossing the Mediterranean Sea of I forget which refugees fleeing which but that was you know largely due to climate change and I mean like worst stories you could imagine like mothers holding their babies up so that they wouldn't drown as they were drowning like I mean just and that was not on mainstream media yeah like that should be what, like, I and mean, that's like this. So I think it was the the day that we left Thailand, or maybe the day before that the Notre Dame burned down, and and this was a really interesting thing to be first like getting news of while we're still in Thailand, and then immediately becoming home to the states, and that this was an international tragedy and conversation, and everyone was on board. And to just be like, what's going on here? Why? Why? Why is this a thing that we can all talk about and rally together on and millionaires coming out of the woodwork to give their life savings to and and people immediately making huge promises and devotions of their time, effort, energy, money, anything to band together and, and restore the Notre Dame. But meanwhile, you know, countless climate change related disasters are going on around the world that are killing way more people <laughs> i don't mean i don't think the notre dame burning down killed a single person um did it i don't think so not that i recall reading about but like i just don't understand why i don't understand the direction of cultural conversations like what why do certain things make it into the cultural stratosphere and become conversation pieces and i mean certainly my theory at the time was just that this gave you know everyone around the world an opportunity on social media 
to say, hey, I've been to Paris too. Look at my picture with Paris and like that I seem knowledgeable and fancy and uh, knowing of of history and whatever to to put my piece out into the world that how, about how this impacts me and that that's a really exciting and status ego driven thing to get the opportunity to say hey like I, I I am tied to this and you don't get any of that with you know northern India experiencing the biggest heat wave of all time and many people dying in the last week from these temperatures reaching over 125 degrees Fahrenheit um you know what's there's nothing sexy about posting with that there's anybody who's been to northern india you're not you know that's not going to become a cultural conversation because yeah there's nothing sexy about it there's nothing western enough about it <laughs> i don't know we, i mean we kind of go into this later in the podcast but I, I think it also has to do with it's yeah, to bring it back to back to our Game of Thrones analogy that you guys haven't heard yet. <laughs> yeah, the how how um, the Night King is is global warming, but those the the idea that there's this thing coming to destroy the world as we know it is just not is too large for people's brains to handle, and it's easier to just be like, meh. Let me focus on our petty wars instead of deal with something that we can't even conceive of. And, and also, like, the whole, the dark night analogy of, you know, people, when things, if things are going according to plan, even if that plan is terrible, people don't, 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 are, are they can, they can handle that easier. Like, if an old building burns down, that is, in a way, sort of incongruence with the plan. That happens, but the whole world ending that's not something that people can deal with yeah so i guess now the real question and i hope one that we are always striving to answer in our lives in general but certainly on this podcast and the conversations that we have with the people we have them with is how do we how do we make that conversation palatable how do we make those actions doable and achievable how do we shift the mindset and perspective to one of being able to even if you can't fully grasp these concepts how can you start working towards them anyway in short don't be a twat global climate change colon don't be a twat 2020 (laughs) it's our campaign all right so without further ado get to listen to us talk more from like a month ago uh thanks again everybody for uh sticking with us through this unexpectedly long break from the podcast and uh it won't happen again and we appreciate you guys sign on to our website to see hashtag trevor bakes pizza and shop with our amazon code and look forward to hearing from you Bye, guys. Bye. So we're back in the USA.
Who's this Jay? I I typed up notes a couple months ago while we were in Thailand of of topics that I wanted to talk to you about on the podcast and something that we've been talking about in different iterations since we've been back in the States um, relates to my question of, or more of a, a topic, that living in Western society, there's this idea that it's irresponsible not to be stressed and worried, that it's like you're not being a appropriate, productive member of society if you're not stressed and worried and... I guess one of the first things I'm wondering is what do you think is happening at a on a variety of levels, but definitely a bunch of subconscious levels to really promote and instill that idea? I think that it is orchestrated by the powers that be. If you have that behavior normalized, that it is not only unavoidable, but something to strive for, to be stressed, overworked, and then you're going to have a population that's more readily willing to be overworked, and thus more profitable for the man. It's not just overworked. I mean, something that we've been talking about um, is definitely the, the police influence here of just, like, this constant intimidation factor of of someone is always trying to catch you at something bad even if you haven't done anything bad they're trying to convince you that you have and get you in trouble for it and it's just this lurking presence of you're in trouble for being alive in america again i mean it goes back to the idea of being controlled it's if you feel like you're getting away with something that you could be arrested for and uh, that means you're less likely to rebel because you're already they've, they've they've sort of shifted reality over a notch so that you're you feel grateful for getting away with something you shouldn't have been even having to get away with in the beginning. It sort of pushes all of your expectations further away from a more equal and fair and just society. I wonder if this is really like just western society or if it's every society but that because we're removed from the society that we're living in like where we live in thailand we don't speak the language so we're not getting that constant like cultural update that you get just from whatever small talk we're not getting it from media because we're not watching any thai tv or staying up to date on uh, the political situation around us so we're pretty like blissfully ignorant of our of our surroundings in the way that feels unavoidable in America. So I wonder if if um, Thai people also feel some type of stressed out, overworked, uh, overwatched, um, but that we're just oblivious to it. I think that we are sort of the pioneers of this whole exploitative industrialized version of economy i think do you mean just the west or the u.s the west i think more so the u.s than any other place but i think that it is seeping into cultures like in southeast asia and thailand or uh but i think that it's not quite there the same way it is here because for generations and generations hundreds thousands of years you've had a different 
more laid back approach to motor production. Like, you know, we heard somebody in Thailand describing the way that work went for a lot of times since it was agricultural based. I'll uh, say rice farming, which is a lot of doing nothing for about three months and then a whole bunch of work all at once and then going back to not really doing much for a while. And that sort of develops a culture of leisurely paced free time that you don't see in our society quite the same way. Yeah, we were also hearing this is why, you know, Thai people got really into developing craftsmanship like woodworking and things like that is because they had nine months a year or whatever to devote to beautiful wood carvings and it became an esteemed art and you might you might not be getting the same level of craftsmanship with people who only have you know weekends to to work on a project or something but um Definitely, it seems like, of course, there's a big element of driving a workforce and making a workforce complacent, but I feel like there's something even more sinister at work to to be promoting fear and stress and, like, having that not only be accepted, but, again, kind of like anybody who's not worried about... I don't know, at least something <laughs> is 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 not operating in reality and like that's an irresponsible person. Well, I think ultimately it comes down to power and and one of the way that power manifests is money and one of the way that money is generated is through production. So it's it depends on how many degrees you want to get away from power and have the conversation. I think it's easy to have the conversation in terms of modes of production and, and, and workforce and, you know, but that's only because that's stuff that we're familiar with. Power as a concept in general is not quite as in our faces as, you know, 80 hour work weeks are. You could have the conversation other ways, though. I mean, like fear. I mean, fear is really just a way of control and that. We create these systems of fear so that we can, so that there's elements that control us, that, you know, we're willing to give up our freedom so that we can be secure. It's a very old and commonly used tactic of siphoning off freedom for the sake of empowering a minority, a minority of people, not necessarily minorities. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting that we're watching Game of Thrones at the same time as uh, going back and forth between these cultures and having these conversations of it seems like you know I'm, I'm, I'm getting a different perspective on, on power and the elite few and things like that from watching Game of Thrones and wondering if it is all just like the Cersei Lannisters but maybe the silent Cersei Lannisters of, of the world who are calling the shots and directing this play of humanity i think it definitely is you know it's easy just to sort of get wrapped up in this like oh no people aren't really evil but you know we we have done through this history just atrocious things in the name of maintaining and searching for power and it's foolish to think that we wouldn't continue or are not continuing to do so like Funding the Contras in Nicaragua and 
generally just destroying economies of entire countries so that we can have cheaper labor. I mean, these are real things that happen, not that are still occurring, that have never stopped occurring, and that are true atrocities. I mean, that, we get mad when an immigrant comes here and takes our job. We're destroying entire countries' economies. Who are the people who are actually, I mean, like, uh, yeah, we should definitely. Congress. Uh-huh. Vote we, them out. We should get a, like, a really conservative person on the podcast, because I would like to be able to understand perspective a little bit better, because I don't think I've ever really met anyone who's, what, who, who has lived the lifestyle and has the belief of they're taking our jobs. Um, but I know that they're out there. I just, I, I'm like. I don't get it. We could have uh, one of my old high school acquaintances on. With a lot of these things, it's like we knew that we were stressed out before we went to Thailand. But again, it's just kind of like a matter of fact thing. It's very, very rare to come across somebody who's like in society <laughs> and saying, no, I'm, I'm not as stressed. I'm never, I'm never stressed. Um, but we weren't really aware of the extent of it until certainly we went to Thailand and realized what it was like to live without all of these kind of constant low-level stressors. And, well, not only live in Thailand, but also live in the country. Um, and, and then also now to come back to this U.S. And, and see how quickly these things came back, where it was like, we didn't realize the extent to which they were present. Now it seems like an undeniable product of uh, living in, in this society. Now that we left them, all of these symptoms went away after a bit. And as soon as we came back, they came back. And that's been pretty surprising. Uh, I guess this is leading to a question of, I wonder how many people in Western society who have never taken a major break from it are at all aware of which things are, like, not inherent to them. I mean, before, when we lived in America, I just thought of myself as a person with anxiety. And that's just, like, a matter-of-fact thing. I'm a person with anxiety. I've, I've, I've been a person with anxiety since I, basically, since I hit puberty, blah, 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 blah. And now even to hear myself talking about like hear older podcast episodes of me talking about anxiety that's like a person and an emotional state that I don't relate to and it seems so much easier and obvious to like do different things to take control over and I no longer think of myself as a person with anxiety well I think it's I think that they've created a system that's really good at what it does I mean when you have systems in place that make people scared and anxious it creates a gratitude for not having these sort of vague horrors come to fruition you're, you're constantly grateful for not being worse off than you are not realizing that there's so much being sapped from you in the process that needlessly and like it's one thing to to work for and, and achieve the state of comfort, but when there's such a disparity of wealth and prosperity that it's it's like, well, maybe it doesn't need to be this hard to just be hitting the middle of the road. And 
I'm saying that from a rather privileged point of view. Like, for a lot of other people in, in our country, it's a lot harder even just to get by, which, you know, the more scared you are, the less likely you are to break out of that mindset. I'm just, it's so hard to pinpoint where these ideas are permeating. I, I mean, certainly it's at levels that are like, well, like totally not even on our radar, but then certainly on things that are small but ubiquitous, like language. Well, where where do you think these this sort of underlying tone of anxiety and stress stress come from? What's the average American stressed about? Well, definitely work is one of them, but well, and I mean, I think I think my major my my biggest source of anxiety for the majority of my life was fear of being attacked and fear of being attacked in my own home. And that was something that was definitely perpetuated primarily by news media, um, especially like in our area from Philadelphia. I feel like you can't watch local news without hearing about kidnapping, burglary, abusive burglar like people breaking in and there being people home and so then feeding those people and then or murdering them or whatever and then stealing their shit and that was just like you know I'm sure it's happening relatively so infrequently but like 100% of those infrequent times it's getting picked up by local news and being presented like it is a constant and then that that alone is pretty pervasive, but then that also becomes a part of the conversation. And certainly our parents were raising us with a bit of that fearful attitude of you're going to get kidnapped um, and all of these other things that were just like trying to keep us safe, but were so grossly blown out of proportion as they were being presented to our parents that then therefore, of course, they were also being blown up out of proportion when presented to us as children and then and then us growing into adults i mean well i think they sort of try to and i say they and, and I'll, get, I'll get into exactly what i mean by they in a little bit but i think that it, it, it attacks every sort of level of maslow's hierarchy i think that you know they they attack your physical security in ways that you were just saying i think they attack your economical security and in a whole bunch of other ways like through healthcare and not owning where you live is a big one. Like we, the average American spends the majority of its their income on housing, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. And when you don't own that house, you're not gaining anything out of you're not you're not gaining any equity. So just siphoning off your earnings, where you have to work more and more and more. And there's also a pretty obvious attack on religion. What do you mean, an attack on religion? People's spiritual well-being. I mean, on attack of actual religions, there's there's certainly that. The more overt version of the, the, the pedophiles. And, you know, there's a lot of them, bring, they bring them on themselves a little bit, but don't get me wrong. Um, but there's definitely been an anti-religious sort of rhetoric going on in our country for quite some time that isn't entirely healthy either. You're sort of siphoning off these stabilizing forces that we haven't really instituted a reasonable replacement for. I don't know if we have any reasonable replacements for. 
These are all meant to isolate and drive pe- put people at odds with one another. When we're united, we're a lot e- harder to control. Yeah, I think another big part of that is, um, you know, we always hear about these vocal minorities on either side, both like in politics or for really any issue of to gain power and to gain clicks or whatever the situation may be. Uh, it's a lot more sensational when you're presenting an opinion that's really extreme, but that also feels so isolating. I mean, again, something that we've been horrified by um, over the past whatever, two and a half years of the Trump administration. I mean, I guess maybe it's not necessarily directly tied to that, but is realizing how how much we are kind of central, cent- central in the center politically, um, that like the presentation of the side of the left has gone so extreme. But I bet that yeah, so many people don't feel like that, but everybody's probably in a similar camp to us of being like, whoa, that no longer represents my opinions. And if I don't even fit in with like the liberals, where the fuck do I fit in? And feeling so isolated that to not have the most extreme viewpoints possible, that you're no longer politically aligned with anybody. And I mean, I say, I say politically, but I just, I mean, you know, on on basically any issue that we talk about on a national or community level. Well, I think that gets to the the question of whom is doing this? Who who is orchestrating these divisions? These like, and you know, the media is an easy one to point at and say, "Wow, they've really polarized our country to a point of splintering down the middle," which is scary, and. I don't think that tells the whole story. I think that the media is a tool being used by really the easiest term is major corporations, but I'd say a select elite group of very powerful, wealthy individuals that control the means of production is really what it comes down to is the people who control how the money is made and them wanting to maintain that control so you know i think a a good example is like farmers in this country where like say chicken farmers in this country you know they they no longer uh, more often than not own the land that they're farming or own the tractor like they own all the expensive things that it costs to maintain but own none of the things that gain equity because corporations like Purdue have come in and arranged it as such, all under the guise of saying, we're going to make this more safe for you to do business in. And we've seen this systematic isolation of how money is generated that's been really sneakily done behind our backs, that a lot of these political moves that are going on is really to maintain that dynamic. It's not about freedom of choice or gay rights or and those things are important, but those are alternate conversations that the media as a tool of the ultra rich is being used to create a conversation that brings us away from real 
I mean, they're all real problems, but problems that are going to have further impact on society at large and cause these undue stresses that allow us to maintain our complacency that are much harder to dismantle, especially while we're fighting other worthwhile battles. Like what? What kind of other worthwhile battle? Yeah. Like gay rights, like a woman's right to choose, like who can go into what bathroom. Like those, you know, they're not unimportant by any means, but when you compare them to things like campaign finance reform and whether or not major corporations can buy and sell our politicians, all those other battles are doomed to fail if we don't address the issues that need to be addressed before we can even begin to think about making any sort of realistic, meaningful progress. Well, back to Game of Thrones. I, I feel like the, the Long Night, the, the Army of the Dead, all of that stuff, for me, no, I think no matter what, is analogous to, to climate change of like, that's the long night that's coming. I mean, this is an unavoidable destructive force that's going to kill literally all of us if we don't all band together and change the direction of our attitudes and fight back. Really, but it, except the problem is that we're fighting against ourselves. It's not, it's not an easily identifiable other enemy. It's that we're all, for the most part, contributing to these choices every single day, whether we know it or not, uh, that is creating this enemy. I mean, how true is that? I, I think you could point to a lot of institutionalized causes of global warming that have been allowed to continue. I mean, yeah, because of the complacency of, of the general public, but I don't think that's entirely fair either. I mean... What, you're saying that, that I'm blaming individuals? Which, I think that it's not necessarily right to say that this is just some sort of, like, broad, nameless evil. I think that there, at least there's some pretty, pretty more egregious offenders that we could, we could look at and target and say, you are, you are causing this. Stop it. Stop. Stop funneling money into our politics so that you can tinker with the laws that allow you to continue. So that you can gain government subsidies, taxpayer governments, taxpayer funded government subsidies that allow you to operate more cheaply than your competitors that could have otherwise have gotten an advantage using renewable resources rather than burning a whole bunch of fossil fuels. Like, we've created these systems that because of the way that our laws have been bought over the last 50 years, maybe even longer, that are now near impossible to, to dismantle because we've built these entire systems surrounding them. And if we start to take them away, then systems start to crumble, which we're terrified of. But you can still say that whole system is fucking corrupt. Yeah, we're, we're a bit complacent as a society, but... This has been years and years and years in the making, and somebody made it. We can say that somebody fucking made it, and, and those same people are not unmaking it. And it is 
those people as elected officials to say, we're going to make laws that are in the best public interest. Not necessarily, you know, we were a democracy. We're supposed to elect people who have the public interest at heart. Not necessarily their re-election campaign. It's what's best for the people. And if that means losing a few jobs to coal and, coal, coal and oil sectors, then so fucking be it. Hey, Amen. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's just like, how, who's, who's our Jon Snow? Who's, who's going to be actually looking out for the interests of the people? But then also, you know, how, how do we, I'm going to, I'm going to say lots of Game of Thrones analogies that are spoiler alerts, spoiler alerts, but like, you know, Daenerys was glad that John called her in to fight the army of the dead. And she said, like, you know, I didn't really believe you until I saw it. Like, you have to see it. And then same when they brought the the dead man to the to Cersei. That, you know, even though, whatever. That there was this obvious thing to point at of being like, see, this battle is real. Uh, the enemy is real. We all need to band together. This is something bigger than whatever petty little things we're arguing about. One of my favorite environmental quotes of all time that people get mad at me for is by James Farmer Jr., a very famous civil rights activist. And he said, I'm going to somewhat paraphrase. I can't remember the exact wording, but essentially, if we don't all band together and focus on climate change, climate change, uh, racial justice is going to be irrelevant because we're all going to have the equality of extinction. And I, I think part of the problem is, is that's not necessarily true. I mean, if you, if you're the ones in power right now, when shit really hits the fan and the waters rise and those people are at the very least going to be the last ones affected. So it's not like they don't understand that the long night is coming or that climate change is real or that there needs to be something done about it eventually. It's they're like, well, I'm going to be the one with the underground bunker. I'm going to be the one that winds up winning in the end no matter what. They're going to be the Cersei Lannisters of the world. They're like, you know what? Fuck it, because at the end of the day, I'll still be good. So I, I'll still have maintained my status quo that I've been trying so hard to maintain. So this, uh, the rational argument of like, hey, dude, the world's going to end isn't going to work. We need to get them out of power. We need a new mode of production. A big part of that is, yeah, we're, we, whatever the systems and powers that be have us in this state of fear, anxiety, complacency, and, you know, what everybody is saying of Donald Trump is this dancing monkey of distraction while the real shit goes down. Yeah, he's tweeting some horrible things. But meanwhile, look at the laws that Congress is quickly sneaking by when he's talking about things that make you upset about bathrooms or whatever the situation may be. And that that's that's playing out all over the place of just, you know. To quote Game of Thrones again, when Tyrion was like, people's minds were not made for problems this large. Exactly. I was, yeah, I was going to ask you who said that. Go on. I think that's part of the problem is it's a lot easier to get really mad about injustices that are 
digestible rather than the idea that this world might end in a fiery mess. Like, and again, it's another distraction that's orchestrated. That it's like, well, you know, let's give them these mini battles to fight and slowly be sucking their soul at the same time. Right. They'll feel like they're doing something, and also in that doing something, they're going to be distracted from the larger picture of of climate change itself, of changing out the politicians and systems in place. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy that, like, how many incumbents won last time? Nobody's happy with Congress. Nobody likes Congress. Congress is a fucking a dismal approval rating, and it has for a very long time, yet we still seem to elect the same motherfuckers time and time again. Like, what is that? I mean, I don't know how much I even believe that the popular vote is really even being counted. I think it's far scary to imagine that it is being counted. I mean... (laughs) That the level of complacency or just, like, what's the apathy? Uh, I mean, but they're so so good at it that it's not even necessarily apathy. It's far too frequently quite the opposite. It's people very passionate about the wrong things. I mean, that's the problem, is the people who do vote are more often than not pretty fired up. and, and The ones that Cersei has already given, like, a gold pouch to, or the promise of gold pouches. Yeah, I mean, that, that's... You know, these, these are people that are really, a lot of times at least, really suffering or starting to feel the tightening of how back how much we are backsliding as a society and and wanting to do anything to fight against it and also being afraid and, and again this is all this is all where all these control factors come into play you you create these things this anxiety and this fear and you make it real and you make it like if you don't do something dramatic your way of life will then be destroyed and you know, that's not apathy. That's people really, truly feeling like they're doing what's best to keep the world as they know it moving. And how do you how do you change people's minds? As my beloved Trevor always says, through art, <laughs> through things where they can put their own perspective into it, and be able to digest it in a very different way than someone telling them to their face, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, the only problem with that is that that change is often generally slow. Uh, You know, I think a lot of the conversation right now, especially over on the left, is who do we pick next to be our Jon Snow? And a lot of people like Joe Biden, and I think that they have a reasonable argument when they say that he's a Rob Stark. Come on, guys. He's the he's a decent guy, but he's the same old, same old. Yeah, I mean, I he he's even more of like a uh, Renly Renly Baratheon kind of guy. Like, just like yeah, he's likable, but like he doesn't really have that much substance there. You know, it's just like. Uh, you know, Rob Stark, whomever, one of those, you know, lesser kings. Um, and I, but I think that their argument is, is valid, that the best kind of change is the change that happens systematically, incrementally, and peacefully. Wait, whose point is this? The, a lot of the left, I'd say older generations that support 
Joe Biden that are like, yeah, you know, other other more leftist candidates are going to be too volatile in much the same way that Trump was too volatile for his far right. We don't the solution to going further right is not to go further left. And I think their core argument of just like the best change is incremental change is valid on to some degree, but I don't think that Bernie's that far left. I know. Okay. Yes. Let's get into Bernie and what we were talking about the other night of the, 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 on the left people who aren't for Bernie. One of the major complaints is that he appears to socialist Yet no one can seem to address a specific policy or point or anything that actually is socialist. It's just this vague concept that you can't get any details behind of socialism that, that is threatening. And uh, this is so aggravating infuriating and exactly what the other side wants you to be saying about your own peeps come on like what just because there's there's scary buzzwords you're gonna lose your mind and not be able to look at actual issues yeah i know and like say if we do like you know to me hillary who i had no problems with i just didn't think she was the best candidate and i had some problems with but you know i've got some problems with every candidate um is much the same way that Joe Biden is, where it's like just too status quo to be really energizing to our, our, our base. You know, it's like, all right, you know, yeah, he cool, but like he an old white dude, like at least Bernie's Jewish. <laughs> at least Bernie is aware of what the, the long night is, at least, you know, yeah, like I just I don't I don't get excited about Biden, and I mean, and let's be real, like the thing- I don't think anybody does. They just are, it's the same thing they were sell- saying with Hillary of just kind of like this seems like the one who might win, so I guess let's put our chips with that one. And it's like no, that's that's all that's only happening because that's what y'all are saying. Yeah, it very much is a self fulfilling prophecy, and uh, it becomes well. I mean, how self fulfilling is it? Like, but. I mean, when you look at Bernie's policies, they're really not that far left in terms of, like, world politics. I mean, he's very realistic. He takes what systems have worked elsewhere and which ones can be applied to our society as diverse and and expansive as it is over this wonderful North American slice of pie and applies them pretty even-handedly to what should be kept and what should, like, I very rarely hear a left-wing person saying that what he's saying is illogical or not the best way forward, which is so sad that we've become so, I don't know, marginalized as as a population that we'd settle for somebody less than Bernie. Don't settle. Don't settle. Hashtag Bernie John Snow 2020. Yeah, like, we have so much student debt in this country that, and there's like, you know, all right, so we pay off all the student debt, for instance. This is one example of an argument. That, that frees up, you know, about at least like 100 to $200 of money 
per person who's paying off student debt in this country. They're not going to just save that money. That's not the way that people work. So that money gets injected back into our economy and it gets rolled over and rolled over again. They spend that $100 at their local convenience store. That local convenience store owner goes out and spends it at Wawa. And that, you know, so it has this cyclical effect that as you inject money into the economy, it cycles through a number of times before it winds up into a savings account. It's taxed a number of times before it winds up into a savings account. Then it goes into a savings account and then feeds into a corporation that then uses it to produce more things that other people buy. So in reality, while it sounds like we're just giving away a bunch of money to people to pay off student debts, it actually winds up making our society more money in the long run because more people have more money to spend on your goods and services. So... There's a lot of research that suggests that doing these kinds of things would actually help the economy. It's not, we're not giving handouts here to poor people. Not that there's anything wrong with that as an idea anyway. But I don't know how we've created this conversation that these are somehow bad initiatives or costly initiatives. Like... The majority of people dip below the poverty line because of healthcare-related costs. So they go, they get sick, they go to the emergency room, they wind up with a ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollar hospital bill that they are now paying interest on. What the profits of which are going to some corporate douchebag who's taking a huge bonus because they're ripping you off at the hospitals. That money does not get recirculated back into our economy. That means that person's now. You're taking that money out of our whole system of economics, and it's not being recycled. It's not paying that set that shop owner's salary. It's not paying the Wawa worker's salary. It's just sitting in some asshole's bank account, not doing anything for anyone. And that's the like one of the real costs of the debt crisis in our country. It's not that people are necessarily in debt. It's that we don't have the disposable income to perpetuate this consumer-driven economy that we've created. That if we don't start to change and change pretty quick, we're going to see another financial crisis sooner or later. Sooner. Most likely sooner, especially with the world climate the way it is. And that's that's really scary. Because everybody, everybody loses then. I mean... Until they rob the middle class again to give it back to the rich. Like, it's just the way it is. There's no, just like the long night's coming, like, what's going to happen first is the economies are going to crash. That's the first sign of impending doom. Which has already happened. Like, less than ten years ago. It'll happen again. I mean, the only way to... The middle class shouldered that burden, but we're pretty, we're pretty, we're, we're middle pretty, class uh, doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, like we, they're, there's, they're not going to have us to fall back on this time. And the rich aren't going to give it up. So what will most likely happen is we'll wind up killing a lot of people. And that's not good. Nobody wants that. A lot of people seem to want that. Well... Yeah, they think they want that. Or they think that they don't want that, and then their actions indicate otherwise. Yeah, I mean, 
It is a weird phenomenon. I don't think that anybody really wants that or even thinks, I mean, I think very few people think that they want that. I think that some people idealize and fantasize, but those same people are usually pretty weak-minded and wind up being the same ones that flee to Canada when the draft comes. Don't get me wrong. I'll be fleeing to Canada when the draft comes. Yeah, it seems like there's enough people who are willing to go over to fuck with other people's countries enough to... You know, we've gotten really good at what we do in terms of how we wind up shifting our financial responsibilities onto other countries. It's like, in all likelihood, we'll go over to Venezuela or Saudi Arabia. I'd be surprised if it's Saudi Arabia since there seems to be really weird connections going on there. To sort of take their natural resources now that there's a reasonable infrastructure set up. Uh, you can already see it. I mean, look at what's going on in Venezuela right now. I mean, not good. That'll be nice. No bueno? No bueno whatsoever. But the problem with that is, is Russia's now being like, no, you're not going to do that. and We're going to do it. And then that's going to get us into it with Russia. And then, you know, it's going to escalate and escalate until somebody backs down. Or... World War Three happens, and then there's no winners. So, let's turn this on its head and say, what can actually be done to make positive change? First and foremost, campaign finance reform. You know, there's people that are making these decisions. Those people are making these decisions based on campaign finance how who's going to get them elected again and that needs to change so that they are free to make decisions that are in their constituents best interest rather than their corporation's best interest how do we change that we vote in politicians who run on a platform of campaign finance reform over a party allegiances if there was a republican that said listen I'm pro-life, I don't really like gays, but what I can guarantee you is that there will be no more corporate money, or at least extreme transparency in corporate money in politics after I get elected. I, Depending on who they were running against, I'd, I'd vote for them. It would, it would suck, it would hurt, it would hurt my soul, but I would do it, because it's more important. And I haven't, I haven't, seen too many politicians that are willing to get up and say that and you have to ask why why aren't they saying it who the fuck doesn't like it's crazy not to want that because then they aren't gonna get the same finances and they're not gonna win based on who has more money and that is how the game has been played i mean i don't think that's crazy most people or a huge amount of people are in the game for the fame and not for the people yeah but why doesn't the average like citizen demand that you know like and i mean to be fair it's a little bit more complicated than that like there are a lot of subsidies for a lot of natural resource companies out there that employ a lot of people especially in these red states so you don't want your job to be on the line if you vote for somebody who might take away those subsidies and i i can respect that but what are you going to do? Like, coal is not going to be the solution for long, no matter what. That's inevitable. 
let's get ahead of it. But I think that is that is the most important issue. I think everything else kind of falls into place. Everything else is more longer term solutions, like education reform, like infrastructure, like There's a lot of financial institutions that need some fine-tuning in terms of regulation. There's a lot of regulations that need to go away. We need a leaner, more efficient federal government that simultaneously does the things that federal government can do best and gets its hands out of things that it does not do well. Give people a checklist for what they should look for in their next candidate of like the bullet points that that candidate is going to say like, boop, boop, boop. This is what I stand for. What should people be looking for? Well, as I said, campaign finance reform is is the most important issue. I think after that, you want to look at policies that directly help the middle class because as the middle class, you know, rising tides raise all ships and the, the, the strongest tide is the middle class because it comprises the most amount of people so as the middle class goes up you'll see the the poor the poorest being helped as well and what i would say those look like is student debt forgiveness again because it's going to have a dramatic effect on the entire economy not just a bunch of people who have student debt uh health reform because that is the number one reason why people dip into poverty in the first place that also frees up a whole hell of a lot of money that is being spent needlessly in terms of bureaucratic nonsense. Like 70% of the money that healthcare, healthcare costs in this country is going to bureaucratic, not healthcare driven Senate. Like that needs to stop. That's a huge portion of our economy just going to waste. Uh, and again, as you do that, you'll see other, like a lot of it. I look at everything from an economic standpoint because that's, I think, easier to digest. Uh, so I think healthcare is a bigger issue than just healthcare. I think it's an economic one, and that you'll see a turnaround a lot from the, the, those two. You know, schooling and healthcare will go such a dramatic way. Those take longer to take effect, but you now you'll see it even in the psyche when you don't have to worry about going to the doctor. I mean, I think that solves a lot of our problems right there, and we'd be well on a way to a healthy nation after that. You know, social issues are also really important, but they'll follow suit. Yeah. I think, but yeah, that's, uh, again, the way media or the conversation, the cultural conversation frames politics is you're a trash person and you're irresponsible and like you're and evil if you don't focus first and foremost on abortion basically it's like don't look at any of these other issues that are actually like you know big impact and speak more to the political agenda as a whole it's just what is the most hot button thing there is and if you don't focus on that you're a trash person well, I think in that, again, I mean, that's, we also need school reform because as we have an undereducated population, it's a lot easier to manipulate them through emotionally based arguments rather than arguments that they're incapable of understanding anyway. Like, if you ask the average American what Citizens United is, they won't have an idea of what it is, what it meant, what its impact was. 
whether it's a good or a bad thing. Uh, YouTube Story of Stuff, Citizens United, right now for a really great, straightforward, fairly brief, I think around 10-minute explanation. You know, but if you if you if we have a population where you can't talk about the money multiplier effect of of debt reduction or of stimulus packages, then like you're talking about tax code, and they, you, there's no way to get ahead of tax code and and have a populace demand something that's going to be good for them if they don't know how to speak or think about it because we have a failed failure in our education system. I mean, you think that wasn't at least somewhat purposeful. Dark Money is a great example of a book that breaks down how this these things. I mean, because it sounds kind of conspiracy theorists, like, oh my god, so there's like a powers that be that have that have undermined our education system out there. Sounds a little far out, but then you look at books like Dark Money that do an excellent job of taking these things down and breaking them into historical context and realizing that. Yeah, man, the ultra-rich have had a hand in educational institutions, in religious institutions, in, in going in and subverting the, the teachings of these institutions to suit their own means. And you realize how clever they are at it. You realize it's not that far out there to, to assume that if they realize that they can spend a million dollars and make ten million, and like that's just simple math and they're gonna do it there's no reason not to do it that's capitalism that's you know you get ahead at all costs that's yeah as a lot of trump supporters say like yeah he'd be crazy to pay full taxes if he doesn't have to i mean and they're right why would you pay more taxes than you need to people are gonna do what's in their best interest most of the time if they're you know if they're smart enough and well educated enough to do it so it makes sense that if you don't, if you want people to do things that aren't in their best interest, don't educate them. My parents are, are sometimes people who intentionally don't do things in their best interest in order to help the greater good. But that and that's because they're so highly educated. But I would say, uh, yeah, that's that's not a rarity for sure. And I don't think I think that when you have say the education that probably our schooling system tries to give you like that allows you that gives you the means to do what's in your best interest selfishly and then when you have a moral code that is developed somewhat you know in some way then you start to realize that really what's best for everybody else is also best for me so you change the way that you operate into, you know, and, but you have to be smart enough to first operate in a meaningful way in the first place, and then you have to be wise enough to realize that what's best for everybody around me. I don't want to live in a slum lord. Like I don't want to be the lord of the slums. You know, maybe I should start doing what's best for my neighbors as well as myself because there, there's really there's no difference between the two. This is again, I think the main barrier to a lot of these things is that. The solutions are hidden under a bunch of fancy jargon and also distracted from with easier to digest, more flashy issues. So it's just like we have to get the solutions constantly in people's faces and simplify them and draw a cartoon. 
And the average citizen can, especially the ones that are more privileged, can do a lot to help matters as well. Like uh, the CEO of Chibani, who I believe is somewhere in Asia, is from somewhere in Asia, like Turkish, something like that. Don't quote me on that. Uh he recently, in the last couple of years, gave 50% of his company, which is a huge company, to his employees, which is a great step in the right direction. I mean, think about that. He built this empire up and was like, you know, the, the, the people who work for me are, are the, the, the people making this possible and gave a huge portion. He didn't have to do that. He doesn't. You know, and that's fantastic example of somebody doing it right you know it's probably easier and best if it happens that way if 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 these major companies were like hey you know we're gonna change the whole ball game here we're not gonna give our ceo who probably does the least amount of work who's really just changing policies to help the short-run profits at the expense of long-term gains money we're gonna say we're gonna give the majority of our company over to the workers who now have a vested interest in making the company run as efficiently as possible because then they get more money which they can then spend at your business it helps everyone so should people only work at companies that offer profit sharing or should they like how how do how does the average person promote this type of policy? Well, I think it goes beyond. I mean, knowing that it exists is a good first step. Yeah, knowing that it exists is an excellent step. Um, it's tough. I mean, it sort of surprises me that like you know, Bill Gates, for instance, he 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 gives away a tremendous amount of money, like astronomical sum of money but it seems to me like it'd be a lot better to do something like I just said like charities don't seem to work that well <laughs> but if you create self, self-sustaining systems then it's going to have a la- long lasting impact yeah, if you're if you're a skilled worker and you have the freedom to choose between two companies, one that has progressive socialistic tendencies and the other that's purely profit driven at the expense of the environment and their employees' well being, it's not only best for you, but also the world to choose the more progressively leaning one. As we've seen with companies like Google that institutes some of these kind of more like let's take care of our workers kind of attitude. They always tend to, to, to do pretty well. Like, you know, but unfortunately, and this is going back to the whole Joe Biden issue, is like a lot of these things require a change in attitude of the general population in order to take. So, really having these kind of conversations, doing what you can on any level. You don't need to necessarily take your take you know take fifty percent of your business and give it away, which would be great if you did. But you know, you don't any 
any push in the right direction, anything that's going to change people's minds or offer an alternative way to this consumer-driven economy that we've been creating, anything that does that is a great starting point and will have a tremendous impact, more than you can possibly imagine. Woo! Yeah. America. America. Fuck yeah. As we're driving to the south, I'm reminded of like a... You know what you were saying earlier that made me think of John Stewart's speech at the rally to restore sanity. I thought about it earlier in this conversation as well. When he's talking about he's talking about how polarized we are as a country and how you know the the media and the politicians and the powers that be would have you think that we're this polarized two sided nation that is at war with one another when in reality we work next to people who have complete opposite ideologies of us that we're friends with, that we, we're all just trying to live and get by. And we're all, we all want to, the vast, vast majority of us all just want to do what's best for us and, and our neighbor. And, you know, when you start operating and thinking off that premise and doing away with the idea that the other side is evil they might be wrong. They might be right. Who the hell knows? We all need to work together to create a world that's going to be around in another 50 years. Like, because that's really who we are. We're not, we're not Republicans. We're not Democrats. We're, we're the market analysis people. We're the servers. We're the nurses. We're the natural builders. We're the, or we're not. Yes. It's not what you do, but how you do it that defines who you are. What, is that a quote? What is the? What does Maxwell say in Across the Universe? Or the or Jude? Jude is having a discussion with uh, about politics. About politics. Well, about about his choice to quit uh, university and and go to New York to become like an, an actor or something like that. And he's like. His, his his uncle or something like that is saying it's 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 what you do who d- that defines who you are and he's like it's not what you do it's something else and then then what's his name jude's like well i don't they ask him and he's like ah, i think it's uh, not necessarily what you do but how you do it <laughs> yeah good movie great movie I think uh, what's his name's reaction is uh, so it's what you do who defends you are. No, it's not. It's who you are that should define what you do. And then Jude comes in and is like, "Well, no, it's it's really how you do what you're doing that defines who you are." I think there's some legitimacy to that. I think they're all kind of right to some degree or another. Yeah, maybe that's the true answer to it all. We're all a little bit right. We're all a little bit wrong. I think it'd be foolish to believe otherwise. Yet, yet many people do. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm right, but exactly. No, it, it uh, it's very helpful to expand my general world view of being in a relationship with someone who's actually right a, a good a good chunk of the time. <laughs> it's like, and I'm sure it goes the same way for you. Uh, it's like, oh, okay. Maybe there's a... It doesn't always necessarily mean that I'm wrong. It's just that I need to expand my viewpoint. You know, it's not that we're in opposition to each other. It's just maybe there's, like, 
variables or perspectives that I didn't uh, previously account for, and then, and you did, or, well, you know. There's no right answer, and you're not going to get anywhere screaming at one another, but you will get somewhere by understanding the other person's point of view. That's the only way to get anywhere. Let's wrap it up. Final, final words of wisdom. Can't we all just get along? Bye, guys.